especially for new hires, the fear of failure can prevent them from trying, prevent them from taking risks, prevent them from becoming great. You've got to make an environment in which people fail fast, learn, iterate, and get better faster. Yeah. You were talking about cutting down the productivity point, the break-even point from six months to three. And the only way to do that is to allow them to fail and fail and fail fast. It's a great cultural thing in a business. If you can have a culture where people are like, hey, I screwed up four times this week. That kind of celebrating screw-ups, if you can build it in a company culture, you can build a work environment where people aren't afraid to screw up, and consequently, they won't cover up their mistakes. So the big question is this, how do small business owners like us grow our leadership, develop our teams and scale our business in a way that allows us to get our products and services out to the world yet still remain profitable? That is the question and this podcast will give you the answers. I'm Bradley Hamner and this is the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Before we get into today's episode, did you know that Club Capital is the largest accounting and advisory firm for insurance agency owners in the country, providing monthly accounting, CFO services, and tax preparation? Check them out at club.capital. Welcome to another episode of the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. My name is Bradley Hamner, your host. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wanted to know how to get your people up to speed faster and get them to be able to remember more? I think all of us have had that experience. Well, that's exactly what my guest on today's episode, Patrick Coots, and I talk about. He is the co-founder and head of product at Mindstone Learning and has nearly 20 years of experience in the public sector. I think you're going to get a lot out of this conversation. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Patrick Coots. Have you ever tried online marketing before and weren't sure if it was working? Maybe your rep talked about all the impressive features and stats and said things were going great, but you didn't know how all that tied into raw new policies written. Well, that's not the case with DirectClicks. DirectClicks is the premier Google Ads and SEO option exclusively for State Farm agents. Why? They're 100% resource-oriented with an exclusivity guarantee. Every review call you have with your account manager focuses on what really matters to your business, and that's leads and call-ins received. Everything will get broken down to cost per lead received. By investing with direct clicks, you're going to free up time and energy to focus on what's most important in your agency and doing what it is you do best. This will be the best investment you make for your team by spending confidently and scaling your agency today with exclusive online marketing partner, Direct Clicks. Visit us at directclicksinc.com. Ambition is the first step towards success. It's time to level up your agency. And Coach P Consulting will help you do just that by using the same strategies he used to sell over 700 life insurance policies in 2021 alone. Now, this is not your regular one and done type coaching. You'll get personalized coaching two days a week, every week of the month, and you'll get a live look behind the scenes of his team training and an office that's performing at the highest level. There's a reason Coach P Consulting is the fastest growing coaching company for insurance agency owners in the country. Coach P will train your team alongside his own and show you the exact steps they're taking to achieve chairman circle, exotic travel, and multi-line presence club, and be one of the few agents to be selected to have a third office. So whether your goal is to be at the top of your local market or amongst the best in the country, this training will give you the strategies and the tactics to get there. For just $250 a month, you'll get high-level coaching each week from someone who is already getting it done at that level, and his strategies work, and it's time to put them to work for you. Sign up at coachpeakconsulting.com and get your first 
full month for free when you mention the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Patrick Hoots, welcome to the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Excited to have you. So we always start on our podcast with background and origin story. Prior to us talking, I read about your story and I thought, you know what? I think he's got a really interesting approach about how he came to entrepreneurism. And so why don't you kind of take people back a little bit and bring us to present day? Yeah, that'd be a pleasure. So I should explain, first of all, as I mentioned when we were chatting before the recording, that I still think of myself as a teacher. I spent nearly 18 years in the high school classroom, and I was responsible for the last couple of years, what would be, I think, K-11 and 12 in the American system. So I was responsible for getting these 17 and 18-year-old kids ready for whatever adult life came next. For my students, more than half of them, that meant university. And then for the rest, of course, it was the workplace and work-based training. And throughout my career as the head of those last two years of um, British high school, I was acutely aware of the fact that both the system itself was not equipping people well, either for university or for adult life. Um, Also, the university system that I was handing them over to was itself also the product of historical forces which were wildly anachronistic, wildly out of date and out of touch with the modern world. So I always had this feeling like this work that I'm doing with a few hundred kids per year, I was limited in the scope of the people I could reach to the people that I personally taught. But I was also frustrated by the sense that I was helping to grease the mechanism of a machine that itself was kind of broken. And this came to a head back in the summer of 2019. I met my co-founder, a serial entrepreneur, some 10 years my junior, very excited and very excitable guy with big ideas about how he wanted to change the world with his next company, which he wanted to be in education. He was introduced to me as a guy who could put him straight on some of the basics about education and learning. And something kind of magical happened in that first meeting, because instead of telling him, hey, you're wrong about this and you're wrong about that, and him thanking me for my time and muttering under his breath, what a waste of time, he got more and more excited. He was like, this is somebody who knows about education and learning from firsthand, and he wanted to know more. We got together for a second and then a third meeting. And... I gradually began to pick up on his enthusiasm and his excitement and realize that this is somebody who wants to find out that he's wrong in order to stop being wrong as soon as he possibly can. And that to me was just like a transformational moment. Because if you think how many times in your life have you met somebody who actually wanted to find out they were wrong, rare quality. I got really excited and I threw my lot in with this guy and we with, uh, I was the first person to join as a co-founder of Mindstone. And we're setting out on this mission to surface and accelerate the world's informal learning. And over the last couple of years, our team has formed around us and we've built our first product, put it out to market, pivoted a couple of times, screwed up a whole bunch of times, which I'll be happy to talk to you about. And all along the way, I have been on this rocket ship of learning, which is a strange thing to say. You know, as a teacher, you get really good at helping people to learn. But by my 18th year in the profession, I think I was getting a little stale. Hmm. And something really transformative for me was just being in an environment where I was a complete beginner 
around some of the smartest people I've ever met and just learning at this fierce pace. Uh, it's felt like a rocket ship and acquiring the skills to become a co-founder, to become an entrepreneur, to become a product manager, a head of learning and a leader within my little team, my little family. So that's my story of how we got to here. There's so many things I want to unpack with that. You know, first thing <laughs> that comes to mind is I like to say business is hard and gets harder, right? Business entrepreneurship. Mm. Well, you chose a really good time to decide to launch a company spring of 2020 that, you know, oh, I yeah. think everybody will long remember what happened during that period <laughs> of time. And so not only were you standing up this new opportunity, but you were also doing it in the face of a global pandemic and everything that came with that. I guess I want to ask you around first this idea that you have been learning. And I know myself, I mean, you can see all the books behind me and mm. podcasts that I listen to and programs that I've invested. I've invested literally hundreds of thousands of dollars, no joke, into my own personal and professional development. But I have to tell you, there's been a lot of that that I've invested in that I did not get any transformation from. And it wasn't mm. because of what I was getting. It was because of me. What is the thing that you have seen for you yourself and maybe in the, obviously for others that you've helped about not just learning information and getting ideas and putting yourself in that environment, but actually doing something with it? Okay, so there's a couple of really important points there. And you've already touched upon the, the central thing, which is that learning is not just the acquisition of facts or information. Learning is a transformative process you incorporate the facts and information into yourself you hang it on the context of your prior knowledge and your prior skill set and then if it's to mean a damn thing you apply it if you don't apply it well you might as well not have learned and that for me has been the reason why my journey at mindstone has been so transformative and so much of a rocket ship is because from day one we had a team of initially me, my co-founder, Josh, we brought on a chief technical officer. So there were three of us on day one. And that meant I had to do everything. And if there was something I didn't know how to do, I had to figure out how to do it. And I could ask people, but we were a small team. So I had to be super mindful about asking things that I could find out some other way. So I was thrown back on my own resources to a great extent. And of course, you use Google and you, you find out the facts as best you can, and then you apply it, you screw up, you discover in the screw up what you should have done. Yeah. And from there, the second and the third iteration, that's where the real power comes in because you're taking something that is partly formed and misshapen and polishing it and turning it into a machine that works. And this kind of throws my mind back to my days at high school where I would help kids write their letters of application to university i used to say to them like give me a piece of crap and i can help you make it great but until you give me something i can't do a damn thing for you because i can't help you improve a thing that's just a blank sheet of paper firstly of course it'd be cheating but more importantly there's no transformation there that's a great part of that workplace learning for me has been the application and the self-reliance and also ownership of your screw-ups because we're going to screw up inevitably. And I mentioned about my co-founder Josh's mindset of wanting to find out he's wrong. A really closely related part of that is wanting to find out that you've screwed up and wanting to screw up fast so you can learn from that and iterate. Of course, that's the 
tech mindset is get it out there, get it in front of users and iterate upon it to improve, get ever closer approximations of the right feature or product. It's been said, I don't know where I heard it from, but if you want to be do, you can't iterate mm. off of a blank sheet of paper, as you said. I mean, you yeah. can't improve off of that. You have to do. I mean, everything, this podcast, I could have watched a year worth of YouTube videos on how to start a podcast. And I guess maybe my 10 Colby quick start just got me to say, like, I don't know. And the first two episodes I recorded on GarageBand on my Mac, I mean, it <laughs> just was... You know, and it wasn't very good. And so you learn by doing, not by just taking in information. You ultimately have to do something and apply it. Yeah. I don't think I was going to ask you this question, but I think that just your transformation from teaching high school to now entrepreneurship is really unique for me to ask this question to. I don't know if somebody has before. In school, my kids right now are 11 and 7. So they're in mm -hmm. rising sixth grader, rising second yep. grader. Well, my son, Coop, he gets in trouble if he cheats, right? He gets in trouble. <laughs> if he, cheats. he gets trouble if he reaches over and looks at somebody else's paper and doesn't do the work himself because they want to make sure that he's learning and applying the information. But boy, when you get to entrepreneurship, when you just mentioned, hey, I can go to my co-founder and I can listen to hear what he is saying and learn from him, you're rewarded. Mm -hmm. You're rewarded for finding and seeking the resources. There's no, oh, wait a minute, you can't cheat in school, but in business, it's encouraged. And, and it's not cheating, obviously, but it's learning from other people. And in some cases, bringing other people literally equity into the yep. fold to help you. Your thoughts yeah, on that? Absolutely. It's so, so true. And this is something that the great British educationalist Ken Robinson said that if you copy from somebody else in school, it's cheating, but copy from somebody else in the workplace, that's collaboration. It's completely true. I would dig into that a little bit because the thing that they're trying to capture in school is actually two things, right? There's the, do you know the piece of information? And also, do you know how to do the thing? Do you know how to do the piece of mathematics? Do you know how to conjugate the verb or whatever the task was? There's a how and there's also a what. Now, in the workplace, we don't give a damn about the what because the what is information and in an age of information abundance, the value of, you know, in what year did the invasion of this country happen or, or what is the name of the molecule that performs this function? Those things are simple facts and Google can tell you so that's worthless. So then what's valuable in the workplace is the how. Now, to the extent that a school is saying, don't copy off your peers because getting the right answer but not understanding how is missing out on the learning. To that extent, the school is damn right. But do you know where the school is damn wrong? Is when your kid reaches out to their peer to say, show me how you did that. Because that is exactly the mindset we want to encourage. Mm -hmm. I should mention, by the way, my twins are just turning seven in a couple of weeks' time. So a parent very much the same age as your youngest. And they are in exactly this mindset right now. They live to please the teacher. They want to get the gold star. They, they, they want praise and they want to do whatever they're told, really, because they want to stay out of trouble and be praised. And this is something everybody wants. But we've got to make sure that we're praising the right things and that we can tell the difference between, hey, you copied the answer, but you didn't learn the damn thing. Or you copied the how and, hey, keep doing that for the rest of your life. It's a great strategy.
Mm, so good. I'm glad I asked that question to you. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about knowledge management. Mm. So I happen to have Chris Ronzio, who is the CEO of Trainual, fantastic software that helps businesses to be able to really curate all of their information. He just came out with a great book called The Business Playbook about how do you capture policies and people and processes, et cetera. Mm. Let's just talk regarding this is how we sell. This is how we onboard. This is how we do all these things. And so all of that can Mm. kind of get into knowledge management. And I happen to be kind of focused on how does the company do it? Not just necessarily, we can talk later about receiving information from the outside Mm. in. So my question is, Patrick, is it's important to be able to curate it into one place. Obviously, Trainual allows that, but it's more, way more important, which is what we're discussing, that our teams and our employees actually learn the thing so that mm-hmm. they actually can use it to then go and be better at their job. They can sell more clients. They can service customers better. They can give really a first-class experience. I think you have some really great insight into mm. mastering knowledge management and actually application to our companies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, is there anything more tragic? And this is more and more software nowadays allows you to do this. You open up the history of a document and you see that it has sat there untouched for the last two years. Right. So maybe you've got some policy, you've got some company values document, you've got some, you know, how we learn as a team document and you open up the history and you realize, well, this thing is not working. Because nobody's looked at it. Yeah, I have to say one thing. You're so right. The only thing that the digital aspect has done differently is that before it literally sat on a shelf and it was dust (laughs) on it. And we just wiped (laughs) the dust off and you realize nobody's touched it for like two years. So so that's the equivalent of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I remember the first school I taught at. Back then I was a history teacher and I walked into the staff room and they had shelves going up like 12, 13 feet in the air all around the staff room. And the head of department said to me, we've got resources. We've got so many things to help you teach with. And she pointed up to shelves, which were 12 feet in the air. And I was like, nobody is ever going to look at this. You're insane. Mm -hmm. You're so pleased about having all of this documentation, but you've put it in a place nobody can get to it. Obviously, that teaching example is kind of a silly one, but we do the same thing very often by putting policies and our processes in some out of the way place and don't not make them a living document. So to cut to the chase, I want to talk a little bit about how you bring those documents to life and how you live them. And there's a couple of components to that, right? There's the culture part, which is the way in which your values are lived by the team and exemplified through leadership. And leadership have to embody the values and follow the policies and point people to the policies whenever they're not followed and build culture by doing. And there is no shortcut to my knowledge for that. There isn't any way that you can build culture except by doing culture, not by writing it down in a document and leaving it somewhere. Mm. Then on a knowledge management level, how do you bring documents to life? My company, Mindstone, has done a lot of work on the annotation and interaction with documents. So we've got smart digital highlighters, comments, flashcards, note-taking that sits side by side with a document so that, and all of this exists in a shared workspace. So if you're familiar with Google Docs, you know this flow, right? And I don't want this just to be a sales pitch for my company. You can do a lot of this with Notion or with Google Docs, this idea of having the dialogue 
sit alongside the resource so that incoming members of staff, new hires, for example, can see not only the source of truth, but also the conversation around the source of truth that informs it. And this puts me in mind of an ancient Jewish Talmudic tradition where the Talmud, the teachings of the Jewish teachers, the rabbis, is then surrounded by further commentary of questions about it. Well, what about in this situation? And well, we think in this situation that. And then around the commentary is a second layer of further commentary, commentary on the commentary. And this is a way in which the Jewish Talmudic tradition has kept the original document alive by interacting and engaging with it. And that sounds, I know, a very highfalutin and somewhat pretentious example, but we do the same thing when we engage with content as part of our teams. And of course, digital platforms such as my own, Mindstone, but also our competitors and fellow travelers like Notion are making that easier and making it easier to ensure that the knowledge and understanding and process does not get siloed in one brain or in one team or in one department. So I think that we've got massive opportunity at this time with the tools that are becoming available to us to disseminate culture and values and process and knowledge and ensure that it's engaged with. One of the things, just to give a simple example that we did was build in the facility where if you are making your way through a resource, as soon as you finish the resource, a couple of questions about that resource is automatically added to your backlog and they become tasks that you need to answer those questions. Now, of course, we're a learning platform, so we use our own product all the time. Mm -hmm. But if you're not using our platform, there's a lot of other platforms out there which allow you to do similar things. And I've mentioned Notion and Google Docs has a lot of this functionality too. But it's all about how you apply it and the discipline that you put in place at the top to ensure that people really do engage with it and not just leave it to gather dust. Context matters. Context okay. matters. Yeah. Are you an agency owner looking to grow your revenue, increase your bottom line, and better manage your taxes? Club Capital is here to help. Club Capital is the largest accounting and advisory firm for insurance agents in the country, providing monthly accounting, tax strategy, and CFO services. Way more than bookkeeping and your everyday run-of-the-mill tax prep, Club Capital is focused on providing financial and tax advisory services that help you plan and forecast your agency's performance. Their financial dashboards and agency forecasting tools help you better understand your agency's historical performance, create and measure future targets, and see how your agency compares to your peers around the country. Imagine what it would be like to understand the impact to your bottom line when deciding to hire a new employee or forecast the impact rate changes or commission rates will have on your business. With over $200 million in tracked annual revenue and $140 million in tracked annual expenses, Club Capital has the data and the team to help you make better informed decisions for your agency. They will help you turn that back office stress into the backbone of your agency's success by giving you the tools to take your agency and your leadership to the next level. Visit club.capital today to book a solution overview with one of our business consultants. Club Capital, way more than a CPA firm. The best use of money is to buy back your time. And one of the best ways to do that is with a virtual assistant. Rock Solid Virtual Assistance brings together top business leaders with exceptional virtual assistants to build successful, relationship-driven teams. The services they provide range from graphic design and marketing to executive admin assistance and everything in between. 
There are many virtual assistant companies on the market to choose from, but at Rock Solid, their processes and passion for what they do place them at the very top of that list. Not only is their hiring process exceptional, which nets them the very best assistance, but they also provide superior support to their teams for the duration of your time with them. The matching process at Rock Solid is unlike any other, and they have the track record to prove it. Their hands-on approach has proven to increase the success rate of their teams exponentially. So if you're looking to build a rock-solid team for your business, reach out to Tracy and the team for a no-pressure discovery call at rocksolidassistance.com. They value your success as if it were their own, because it is. A couple things come to mind. I'll add even one to that. For me, the experience that I love to be able to get things out of my head Mm. is with my iPad and with good notes. Oh, yeah. And it was transformative when I realized that I could share and collaborate on a good notes document with my team. Mm-hmm. Because it's effectively the way that I like to process things is on a whiteboard or on a flip chart. Okay. I like mm-hmm. to do that sort of brainstorming. And so what ended up happening was that I would create a document and then I would end up being going out to someone else as a PDF. Well, yep. then it just, it breaks down the ability to collaborate on that. The second thing I want to say is I have mentioned on the podcast that a couple of years ago, <laughs> I wrongly and proudly said that I set a goal out that I was going to read 36 books in the year and mm-hmm. that I read those 36 books. Well, that sounds great, but I read a lot of books just to read a lot of books so that I could hit mm-hmm. the goal as opposed to actually getting transformation. The number of books that I have read this year, like actual new books, is probably less than five, but mm-hmm. I have read a couple books in particular already three times, three times oh, this wow. year alone. And every time I go back, I was just reading one this morning on my iPad. And I went back mm-hmm. and I said, how did I not pick this up on the first two times that I read the book? And so it was just almost like, again, I know that's a little bit of a different way to consider it, but it ends up mm. becoming context and where I was at the time to actually hear the information. Because I yeah. read something this morning that I thought, man, this is huge. Well, I read the same thing two other times and it didn't resonate with me at all like it does today. Okay, listen, I'm going to have to ask you, maybe after we finish recording, I want to know what you've read that's been transformative. I also want to tell you something about our process. Now, in our company, we have a book club. And in the time it takes for me to read a book, usually I only finish a book in a month. Okay, Mm -hmm. and we have our book club once a month. So our next book club session is Tony Fidel's Build. And our book club session is tomorrow afternoon. And you know what? I finished reading that damn thing this morning. So I've only just made it. But in the time it took me to read it once, one of my colleagues has read it three times and he's taken his notes. And when I go to that meeting with him, he's going to pull out, well, this is what I noticed and this is what I noticed. And what did you think about this? And I will bring my perspective. And so will the other four or five people who have volunteered to join that book club within the team. And that way together, we hold each other to account. Because if I show up and I haven't finished it, I am going to be really embarrassed as a Mm. co-founder of the company. Secondly, we bring to the table our own insights and perspectives and we contextualize. And I wanted to mention, by the way, you were talking about how when you read it the last time, you didn't get the same thing out of it because of that learning context. And that is a massive insight from the science of learning. (laughs) That context is king. The things you already know the place that you were when you encountered this new thing, whether it was morning, afternoon, whether you were hungry or whether you were tired, 
who you were with, how you felt, all of these things define the parameters of your engagement with and your capacity to hang that new piece of information onto the weave of your prior knowledge. So that's what you found a hack for doing that, which is just read it a couple of times, two or three times. In each time, you're giving yourself additional opportunities to find context. I've got the strategy I'm using, which is read it once, but talk to people about it. Mm. And through a variety of strategies, taking notes, again, if you can stop every time you have that insight and actually do something with it, it's far more likely to be transformative. And you know, you get to the end of a book and you're like, well, I agreed with everything you said, but I'm damned if I can remember a word of it. And that, okay. that can happen. So, this is good because I think that we are talking about something for our businesses that really mm. matters here because you touch on a few things. So I will tell you exactly what I was doing and then you can mm -hmm. possibly give me the science behind it and then you can apply mm. it to maybe outside the context of a book and more yep. to the context inside of knowledge within our companies. Okay. So mm. here's what I was actually doing this morning. First of all, the reason I'm rereading books is because I heard someone say, if I cannot teach or feel like I could teach someone else the content of the book, I don't understand the book well enough. And I thought, okay, that resonates with me because there's actually mm. books I really love, but I could not go back and actually try mm. to teach the information off of that. Okay. That's number one. Number two, what I was doing this morning is on my iPad, I had Kindle up, you know, at split screen. So on the right side was the book. On the left side is Good Notes, okay, which is where mm -hmm. I'm taking all my notes. The third yep. thing I'm doing, I was listening to the book on Audible. Yep, yep. So I'm speeding through the book a lot faster, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm at, I was at 2x speed. So I'm going through the book, and then I would pause it on my AirPods. This mm -hmm. is at like 5.30 in the morning when I'm doing this. And then I would mm -hmm. go and write out. Like, okay, here's these points, one, two, three. And yep. then that's how I was keeping up with it. This is fantastic. To your first point about you haven't really understood a book until you can teach it. I don't have anything much to say about that apart from that. I do agree that teaching is a great way to learn. To really crystallize and communicate an idea allows you to get to the very bottom of it. So that's a great practice. And of course, if you're writing good notes for your team, that is exactly the kind of opportunity to teach, to crystallize, and to really bottom out your understanding. So yes, 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 100%. Let's just talk about your setup. It's interesting, you've got your notes on the left and the book on the right. Most people would have it the other way around. And on my platform, Mindstone, the text would be on the left and the book would be on the right. So I, I, the notes would be on the right, sorry. Either can work, obviously. But the movement, the reason why we set it up with the source on the left and the output on the right is because in the English language, you read from left to right. So there's a directionality of transfer. That's why we set it up that way, but it obviously could work the other way around. But think about this. Just to prove you're, this, I know if you're yeah. on YouTube, you can see this, that literally that's what it was. Oh, right there. that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to switch just, it around. I'm actually literally going to switch it around right now because that's kind of interesting because I think you're right. And honestly, I think it was laziness of so whenever I swiped up mm -hmm. on my iPad and moved it to the right. I think it was just an easier thing well, to move it to the right than the left. But I, I do totally your, understand what you're saying there. You're holding your pen in your right hand. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're right handed, then as you reach in to write on the screen, if it's on the right, you're not going to cover the source text with your writing hand. Whereas uh, if, good point. If you've, 
yeah if you're right-handed you're going to cross the screen to do that um let's talk about spatial yeah let's talk about spatial embodiment right we've all had that experience where you've read a book and you're like i want to show that page that passage to my friend my partner my colleague whatever and you remember how the book felt in your hand when you read that interesting bit in your mind's eye you can picture that kind of the thickness of your left hand how many pages were left and the thickness of the right hand of how much of the book you've read that feel that physical embodiment is bringing sensory context to your memory much clearer than that even though is the sense of where it was on the page was it on the left side or the right side of the page remember that was it toward the top of the page or was it toward the bottom that's the sensory context in which the memory was laid down and you're accessing that context in order to find the thing later now what you've done with your hack of listening to the audiobook at the same time is you've layered in an additional layer of sensory context the auditory now there is a widespread misconception which is completely scientifically untrue that there are visual learners and auditory learners and kinesthetic learners and so on that's not true it was a widespread belief but it's been scientifically debunked unless you have a sensory impairment you are a sensory a multisensory learner you are auditory and visual and kinesthetic and those modalities complement each other and the more ways you can bring the information into context the better able you will be to incorporate it into your life so there's a big lesson from the science of learning there don't believe anyone who tells you well, i'm a kinesthetic learner i can only do it by kicking a ball around that's nonsense but the truth multimodality is good for contextualization and context is king oh uh, that's really helpful actually because in my mind i was thinking to myself okay let's say that you did use a platform whatever the platform is of where you are wanting to document how we mm. sell as an example yeah. sure ultimately i think what you're sharing is such good value to say look they could read here's the script that we use but they mm. also need to listen to a script but they also need to like see like visually see maybe mm. a role play happening or something like that so they can do it and then they actually need to engage in some way through mm -hmm. either quizzes or some sort of quiz but then actually do the thing to encompass all aspects of that i think it's actually really good because i have heard that people saying oh well listen they either they're audio visual or kinesthetic and so i love that you said that yeah absolutely and by the way your point about progressing from the consumption to the doing for many people i think that's the scariest step right the move from okay I know what I'm supposed to do. Now I've got to do it. I'll, you know, help. And you can scaffold people across that bridge. Yeah? You can provide them with steps to break it down and do it one step at a time. Let's say, for example, you're modeling a sales technique. You can model the first five minutes of the call and then hand over to a ex more experienced person who can show you the middle section of the call and then the close. And so in training, you can chunk it and tackle the stages one chunk at a time. Uh, role play, of course, is absolutely brilliant for this because you've got a safe environment <laughs> yeah. in, which the, in which you're not going to lose a customer when you're role playing. But yeah, you, chunking it is a really powerful way of atomizing the stages of a performative practice and then optimizing each of those stages before stringing them together. 
if an orchestra is performing a symphony, the rehearsal does not go from beginning to end. Okay, we're going to pick out some of the difficult bits, and we're going to do those in isolation. All right, now we're going to do the first movement. Okay, now we're going to take a look at the second movement. Okay, stop. Let's go back to the beginning. And you rehearse the sections before you string the whole thing together in performance. All right, so all of this, I think, has kind of brought us almost to a crescendo of asking mm. this one question around, there's not a single company, Google, all the way down to a small business owner with two team members who wants to get a new hire up to speed faster. They want to take the knowledge that they have and they want to be able to get this person up to speed faster. I mean, think about it. If it takes me typically six months to get someone to a level of competence that they are now a profit center in the business and I could mm. reduce that down to three months, infinitely, we're way, way more valuable. Mm. What typically happens, and I certainly know that I can be guilty of this, is that you start out with the best of intentions. Yeah, we're going to be patient with you. We're going to give you all the information that you need. And about two months into it, you're like, okay, this person's got to be producing. Like we need to get on with it. And so we start shortcutting. We start dismissing certain things, processes of things that we would kind of walk them through naturally. What's the right way to get somebody up to speed faster? Okay, this is a tough one, right? Because you already pointed out that everyone from Google on down wants to get people up to speed faster. And so if I had a magic wand, believe me, I would have more money than Jeff Bezos right now if I could just tell you a trick that solves yeah. this problem. What I can tell you is a few of the things that we typically do badly and that we can do better. Firstly, when we're hiring, the hiring process doesn't actually track against the skills and attributes which are going to be required in the job. So we very often hire people and then discover that they're not suited to the role because of the way that we hire by interviewing people and asking them how they would do the thing. A better way to hire is to get the person to do the thing, mm. sit with them and take the time because of course it's going to save you a hell of a lot of time and effort and pain and lawsuits in the long run if you're not having to fire somebody. So mm. spend the time in the recruitment process to actually work with alongside the person, have them perform the skills that they're going to need to perform. In you may need to contextualize that into a setting that where they have shown that they can perform in the past. You know, so some of the skills that they've applied in a previous role, because perhaps they haven't acquired the skills and knowledge they need to apply in your context. Give them a forum in which they are secure and, and have them do the thing. And that's, of course, a great opportunity for them also to sound you out as an employer. Mm. And maybe they're going to say, I don't want to work with these guys if this is the way they work. Well, again, that's a great learning for you because you don't want to make the wrong hire. So that's my first point. The traditional interview is just dumb and we should stop doing it. If you can, and of course, employment laws vary, your mileage may differ, then you should bring people on it. In a probationary role, give them a space in which to perform and try and fail. I think very often we have this two-stage onboarding process where you have the initial onboarding. We say, okay, you've got a month before you have to start delivering. And during this time, we just want you to learn. We want you to watch. We want you to listen. We want you to read. Learn everything you can about the company. And then we're going to flick a switch and suddenly you're going to be a productive member of the team. Well, that's not doing. And therefore, it's not a great strategy. Yes. Um, get people doing from day one, find environments where if they screw up, it's not going to sink your business. So find those contexts in which the phrase we used in teaching is high stakes, low threat. Hmm. 
it needs to be high enough stakes that it feels real and they're really performing and they've got the adrenaline rush of delivering. But at the same time, the threat is low. That's to say, if they screw up, they're not going to lose their job. I think this is something that in my space, in the tech space, is an area of strength in tech, which is that failure is not viewed as a failure. It's viewed as a learning opportunity. And especially for new hires, the fear of failure can prevent them from trying, prevent them from taking risks, prevent them from becoming great. You've got to make an environment in which people fail fast, learn, iterate, and get better faster. Yeah. You were talking about cutting down the productivity point, the break-even point from six months to three. And the only way to do that is to allow them to fail and fail and fail fast. It's a great cultural thing in a business. If you can have a culture where people are like, hey, I screwed up four times this week. Let mm. me tell you how I screwed up. Let me share my screw up so none of the rest of you need to screw up in this way. And that kind of celebrating screw ups, if you can build it in a company culture, and I'll admit that's a difficult one to do because you need very high trust. But if you can do it, then you can build fearlessness. You can build a work environment where people aren't afraid to screw up. And consequently, they won't cover up their mistakes. They won't hide it from management. And that transparency can help you be a vastly more productive team. I want to try to give a little bit of analogy. It's something that's kind of going through my head with what you were saying. So my son's really involved in sports. Like I know mm -hmm. many people, soccer is certainly big in London. Mm. But yep. my son's big in the basketball and in baseball. Mm -hmm. And we just finished up baseball. And towards the end of the season, we had tried to get the team to be willing to take risk. In other words, still second base, still third. Have the catcher. If you see that guy coming off third base on a pitch, throw it. Yes, we understand the third baseman. You may make a bad throw. We understand the third baseman may miss it. And if he does, that guy is probably scoring. We get it. But you know what? Throw it. Do it. And at first, the catcher is double clutching a little bit, like, I don't know if I should throw it. And then they throw it, and kid scores. And then the catcher's looking, saying, is my dad or the coach going to get mm. on to me because <laughs> I screwed up? And the reality is, is how the coaches and even that person's parent, that kid's parent, how they handle that afterwards matters, which is what you're talking, which is, yeah, you're saying you want me to throw it. And I threw it and I threw it 10 feet over the kid's head. Are you going to get onto me? Because if you do now, their kids can't process that. They're not saying that. But mm. if you do, I'm going to be a lot less willing to actually throw it next time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I've got to say, as a former teacher, much of the value of sports is exactly this kind of learning the game theoretical component of life in yeah. an environment where nobody has to get lose their job or lose their marriage or lose their friendship. It's just a game. This is one of the best things about sports. And yet, by putting too much pressure on people, we actually make it so, A, they don't enjoy it because it's all too much stress and, and the coaches is going nuts on the sidelines. And B, they don't learn the lessons that they need to learn about grit and resilience, about picking yourself up when you're down, about every game is a fresh start and a fresh opportunity. And you can draw a line under the previous game and say, okay, well, we messed up that time. Yeah, Let's do it differently next time. I think sports are absolutely wonderful for that. And I think that we get them wrong when we fail to create that space for creative calamity. Totally, totally. Patrick, this has been great. We're going to go into Ina and rapid fire questions now. But before we do that, 
people want to know, connect with you, learn mm-hmm. more about Mindstone, where would you point them to? The web address is beautifully simple, www.mindstone.com. Mindstone spelled exactly the same way as the MCU spell it. I've no idea how we managed to get that trademark, but we did. It's ours and it's mindstone.com. If you ever come through to the customer support, we're a small team, so that's me. And if you want to talk to me personally on email, then it's patrick at mindstone.com. Couldn't be simpler. Awesome. All right, here we go. E9 rapid fire questions. You ready? Go for it. What's the last book that you read? That's an easy one. Build by Tony Fidel. What's the book that you would recommend the most to other small business owners? Ooh, that's a really good one. I'm going to go Cold Start Problem. Interesting. I haven't heard that one. Yeah. yeah, check it out. Check it out. The name of the author just slipped my mind, but it's really powerful for any business that wants to have network effects. Favorite tech tool or app that you use every day, not native to your phone? <laughs> I recently found an app called Excalidraw. It is the simplest, most basic sketching tool. And what's brilliant about it is it's so basic, you don't need to be told how to use it. And it looks kind of hand-drawn and crappy. And the wonderful thing about it is the hand-drawn crappiness makes you feel great about your sketch. It's lovely. You can sit next to anyone on a 10-hour flight. Let's just say you fly from London to Atlanta. Who would you love Mm -hmm. to sit next to? If they could be dead, I'd sit next to Christopher Hitchens. If they could be alive, I think right now, I would say Jacinta Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand. Favorite travel destination? Uh, Istanbul. Favorite place you want to travel? Never been to Hawaii, like to go. What was the best thing about the pandemic for you personally? More time with my kids, no question. I think for a lot of fathers, it was an opportunity to reset. I got to be a teacher as well to them, and that was really, rewarding and powerful. When you're not working, what do you love to do? I love to run, play guitar, and when I've got headspace, I write songs. It's interesting that I haven't written a song in two years, and I've been a startup founder for two years. Hmm. That part of my brain is gone at the moment because all my creativity is in my business. I, I totally understand that. Best piece of leadership advice you've ever received? The chief exec does not sit at the top of a pyramid but at the base of the foundation. Mm, Totally agree with that. Patrick, it's been great. Hope to have you back on in the future. Oh, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. You know, each week I always try to give one, two or three takeaways from me. The thing that stood out to me the most from this conversation with Patrick is that people are multi-sensory learners and the faster that we can have them to do the thing. And I was thinking about it obviously from a recruiting perspective, whenever you're bringing somebody on board to get them up to speed, get them actually doing the thing so you can actually see them in the environment, but also in a training environment, that first 30 days, that first 90 days is so key. I mean, every business, whether you're an insurance agent or just any type of small business owner, you want to be able to get people up to speed as quickly as possible. Now, that being said, you don't want to have to skip steps. And I think that ultimately we want to be able to go fast, but we want them to be able to retain the information so that they're competent in their job. And too often, maybe sometimes we want to go so fast just to cover the steps and they're not actually absorbing it. And so to me, thinking about it from a multi-sensory perspective and getting them to do the thing as fast as possible, not just learning, sitting there and absorbing information, but actually interacting with it is the fastest way to do it. So 
that's my biggest takeaway from today's conversation with Patrick. Make sure you reach out to he and his team at mindstone.com. A big shout out to our podcast sponsors for this episode, Rock Solid, Club Capital, Coach P, and Direct Clicks. I've had a number of you actually reach out to me after having our sponsor, Rock Solid, come on board with us and ask me about my executive assistants that I have and my other assistant, my creative marketing assistant, Ellie. And they were just asking questions about, now I've heard you say the best use of money is to be able to buy back your time. And can you kind of tell me how that's worked from your perspective with your assistants? And I tell you, I really honestly can say this. I really wish I had leaned into looking at getting an executive assistant earlier. And the reason is, is because at the end of the day, they're doing the thing that is probably the most valuable to you is they're helping you as the owner of your business to be able to buy back your time. And I think that that's key. I really think that also I wrongly had mistaken for a really long time that it needed to be a full-time position. And I don't know why I had that default. I guess I was predisposed to that. But the reality is what my team is able to get done in five hours a week is unbelievable. Five hours a week, 10 hours a week, 15 hours a week, you would be really surprised. And I was skeptical at first. I mean, two and a half years ago, I would have not thought that, but I wish I'd have done it a lot sooner. And I also think that you have to sometimes as an owner, just truthfully get past the whole idea of like, well, you know, I don't know if I should have an executive assistant or an admin assistant. Is that a little too, am I too big for my britches, so to speak? I'm sure somebody is listening to that and saying, yeah, I've felt that way. I don't feel that way. At the end of the day, if you've heard the interviews I've had with other people before they talk about income producing activities, there are things that you And only you can do in your business that's really going to move the needle forward. And if you think about the idea of what you work on is more important than how hard you work. And I truly, seriously believe that what you work on is more important than how hard you work. Well, to be able to get things off your plate so that you can focus on those high leverage activities, that's exactly what you'll be able to get whenever you work with, have an assistant that's able to take away like basic things, your email, your schedule, et cetera. I am terrible with my schedule. So truthfully, reach out to Rock Solid, go to rocksolidassistance.com. Tracy and her team are fantastic. I mean, they really have like a two-sided business, right? They're trying to find the best assistants, but also trying to find the very best clients. And I'd worked with a previous company prior to that, and it was not the same experience. It just really wasn't. And you really do get what you pay for. And Rock Solid has been fantastic to work with. So rocksolidassistance.com. You know, kind of similar to that, I had somebody reach out to me the other day. Somebody on the Club Capital team asked me like, hey, there's somebody that would love to talk to you about Club Capital, Club Capital Services. Would you jump on the phone with them? And they wanted to know just like, hey, well, how is this basically going to help me? And, you know, I'm not a salesperson, I'm not in business development for Club Capital, but I can tell you firsthand is that it's really easy if you heard one of the episodes that we dropped recently talking about going from VFR to IFR in your business, uh, visual flight rules to instrument flight rules. And obviously the release of Top Gun not long ago, which is an incredible movie, by the way. You know, there's that idea of being able to fly the plane and be in the cockpit of your business by just reading the dials in the business. And I think that it's so easy If you ask anybody, hey, what's your production numbers? What's your sales numbers? I mean, they can rattle that off easily. But whenever you start asking numbers around top line revenue, even, let alone bottom line profit, what's your profit numbers? What's your profit percentage? What was your revenue last year? What was your profit last year? A lot of people get stumped with that because they just don't look at it. 
And it's a skill, but it's not just about having the numbers. I mean, it is one thing to have the numbers and it's good to know that so that ultimately you're making more money. The business numbers are going up. So as your sales numbers are going up, you're making more money or the business is making more money and you're taking home more money. You're pulling some chips off the table and you've got to be able to track it. So for many of you that are into fitness, you've got to track your calories and you've got to be able to track your workouts and your weights and so that ultimately you're going up in weight so you're getting stronger. And I think your financials are the exact same way. For whatever reason, it's just really oftentimes dismissed and uh, kind of seen as like a once a year thing. Oh, yeah, I've got to do the taxes and see what it comes out to be. And But it can really be a strategic advantage for you if you know your numbers. So reach out to Club Capital, go to club.capital. And if you're using doing it all by yourself, it's kind of similar to what I was talking about with Rock Solid. Truly, it will save you time because at the end of the day, reconciling your bank accounts is not a good use of your time. What is a good use of your time is being able to get the numbers and then be able to make decisions, strategic business decisions off of those numbers so that you know, okay, if I'm going to make this higher, how long is it going to be until that person becomes profitable? If we've got some rate changes coming into our business, how is that going to affect whether those rates are going up or whether they're going down? How is it going to affect us? And, and does that maybe get us, create us another more wiggle room to be able to hire another producer, as an example, another service person? What about marketing? Are we investing enough in our acquisition system to be able to get the sales numbers that we want? I mean, if we're investing 1%, we want to grow. At the end of the day, that's going to be difficult if you're only investing 1% of your marketing into it. You've got to be able to invest at a certain amount of marketing. Those are the skill sets that Club Capital can really walk you through, not just giving you the tool set that you need. And also just understanding the mindset, too, of how to kind of approach it. So go to club.capital, book a demo, reach out to somebody on the team, and they can walk you through the tools and the analytics that you get. And then make sure you ask them about their CFO services that they launched this year. It just really takes it to a whole nother level and gives you insights that otherwise you would have to, you know, you'd have to have a hundred thousand dollar employee plus to be able to give you those type of insights. Club.capital. And of course, last but not least, big thanks to Direct Clicks and Coach P. One of my mentors actually had sent a tweet out the other day that I saw and then I heard him on a call not long ago, talking about just the importance of developing of your people. And one of the things he mentioned, and then I kind of actually messaged him back and said, hey, what about capacity to do it? So if you're ever familiar with this idea from EOS, they call it GWC. If you read the book Traction, do they get it? Does your team get it? Do they want it? Do they have the capacity to do it? And I basically asked him, I said, well, what about the capacity to do it? And he said, training, training. And if ultimately, if they still don't get it after you've invested in the training, then they're not the right person to have on your team. I thought, man, that's actually a pretty simple way, a distinct way to put it. And I think that that makes so much sense, right? And so I think sometimes you have to really look at, am I actually giving my team the best chance? Look, like, you got to find A players. You got to find really, really good people. It's better off to start with somebody who's a six and turn them into a, nine or a 10 that it is to try to take somebody who's a two and make them a six. And I'm just using those numbers as kind of a arbitrary example, hypothetical example, more than anything, illustrative purposes. And so that's exactly what you get with Coach P. I think that you know that you need to invest in your team, but it takes some time to be able to do that. And plus, you've got to be structured and disciplined around it. And then you've got to come up with the topics. That's exactly what David puts so much time in is to make sure that he's giving, covering all of the different topics that you need in your insurance agency to be able to get it to the next level and whatever the next level is for you. I mean, if 
maybe you've had an incredible year and you're ready to go from good to great. That's exactly what David's going to be able to do. And you want to learn from somebody who's getting it done at really the highest level that there is. So go to Coach P Consulting. Make sure you tell him that you heard about him on the Club Capital Leadership Podcast. Get your entire first month off. And when you're training and you be able to have leads that are coming in, I mean, that's where DirectClex comes in is to be able to give you really great leads for your sales team to be able to convert. I was having a conversation with Matt the other day and we were talking about this and we were talking about lead cost and we were talking about you know, the cost of acquiring the customers and just the numbers and analytics and the data behind marketing. And he and I kind of both geek out on that sort of thing. We went way down a rabbit hole. But I think the reason I'm telling you that is because like he really cares and has done all of the hard work to know how much it should cost you to be able to get a quote start. And whenever you begin to kind of think about that, if you're working with another company, and they're not able to give you that, or if the numbers that they're giving you are way off, I mean, you should be somewhere in that 15 to $20 per quote start range. And those are the numbers that direct clicks is going to shoot towards. And they have been able to get results. You know, I talk a lot about the personalized touch that direct clicks and the team give, and they do, but more so you want results flat out. I mean, you want to be able to drive your lead costs down so that you can acquire more leads that ultimately you can sell, or if you don't sell them initially, you can nurture them over time. And so how much you're spending in those lead costs, those quote starts really does matter. And not only just driving down leads, I mean, it's easy to get cheap leads from any vendor, but you want to be able to get quality leads and you want to be able to get them at the lowest price possible. So make sure you go to directclicksinc.com. Appreciate all of you. Thanks for sharing. This has been helpful to you. We'll see you next week. Lead well.